If you haven't done so, I invite you to turn in the Word of God to an epistle in the New Testament. An epistle is simply a letter. And in this case, to 1 Timothy, to chapter 3, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor. Now this evening, we're going to be continuing in a series looking at the parables of Jesus, and in particular looking at one that has to do with persisting in prayer. I would strongly encourage you to attend and to consider what it is that stands as an obstacle to persisting in prayer. This morning, we are continuing in a different series. We've been looking for some time now at different pictures of the people of God throughout the Bible, different ways that the church is imagined in Scripture in order that we might gain better insight about our relationship to it, our relationship ultimately to Christ, And this morning, as you hear our passage in 1 Timothy 3, try to spot the picture. What is the picture? It's not as obvious as some other passages. Now, here's a description of the office of an elder. Let's hear together the word of the Lord. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your holy word. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would incline us to receive and to respond to it in a way that will bring you glory and will bring blessing to your church and benefit to the world. We ask this knowing that in Christ, your promises are yes and amen, and we look forward to the fruit that you will produce. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, we looked at a picture in the Bible concerning the church where we are pictured as a body. Like a human body, the church is composed of many different members, but we make up an organic whole, and we saw that Christ, of all the body parts, is the head. He is in authority, he is directing, but with goodwill in mind. Now, this morning we come to a different picture where we're not seen as simply one physical body, but as a number of distinct people who are united in some way to one another. It's implied in verse 5, but it's explicit in verse 15. In verse 15, we read that we are the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Have you pictured the church as a household? 
as a household. And what does that mean to you? For some of the children here, I wonder what that means to you. When you think of a household, what is that? The term that we have in this text, the term translated into English, has a slightly, has a somewhat different meaning than the term as we often use it in, in English. Often in English, when you hear the word household, people think of a group of individuals who are related by blood or marriage. That is, a family. And it does have a relationship to that. But that's not exactly what this term gets at. Or we think of people who live under the same roof. So roommates would be a household. But this term gets at something a little bit different. There is an example of this in one of the disciples of the philosopher Plato. He was named Xenophon, and he wrote a treatise called The Household. In fact, it's called oikonomikos, which means the household manager. But that sounds a little bit like a word that we use today, economics. That's where we actually get the word economics from, the idea of the Greek household. You have to roll back the clock, get away from modern industrialism, most people throughout most of history were agrarian. And the structure in most societies was set up around a household, which wasn't just the people who were blood relatives. It was also the servants who lived there or contracted laborers lived there on the property, typically. And they are all under one household, under one authority. This is the word that the apostles, led by the Holy Spirit, used to describe the church of God as a household. And we're going to see this morning, the Holy Spirit calls you to consider the church not simply as brothers and sisters in the Lord, though we are, not simply as people who gather under one roof, sharing certain common beliefs, but by calling us the household of the Lord, the Holy Spirit is telling you, see yourself in Jesus Christ as one who has been given a purpose, a role to fulfill on behalf of the organized whole the family, the household, united under Jesus Christ. Every member of a household has a function, and they are not simply an employee, they're a family member, but towards the whole welfare of the household. Do you see yourself that way? Do you see yourself as having loyalty to Jesus Christ as the head of the household? Do you see yourself as having a duty to the brothers and sisters that you labor with and to the fellow servants alongside of you? Is this a real meaningful part of your life? This is what the Holy Spirit is calling you to consider this morning. And as we do so, we're going to look at this passage and these ideas under three main headings. First, we're going to look at the household in relation to Jesus Christ himself. But then in relation to certain people that he set as managers in his household, officers, We call them elders, deacons, ministers of the word. And then finally, we'll look at this in relation to all of us, because every member has a role to play. And so these are the ideas. I'll announce them again as we come to them. But first, think about that ancient household. It wasn't as if everyone was a law unto themselves. We know historically it was not structured that way. There was one person who would stand as head. Typically, it was a male. It would be the Potter familias, the head of the household, the father of the house. Maybe you've heard the term godfather. And there's some relationship here. The idea of one person who's the head, and even after his sons are fully grown, they remain in loyalty and service to him. That's how it was structured in the ancient 
Mediterranean world. The head of the household often had extensive authority beyond anything that we would be probably comfortable with. In much of Roman and Greek history, it was accepted that the head of the household had the power even of life and death over his family and servants. When the apostles choose this word, their point is not to condone every aspect of the culture and the civil structure. But they are drawing a knowing connection to very real authority. This word, as it would have been understood by early Christians, people coming into the faith for the first time, was unquestionably connected to structures of authority. Authority. And of responsibility. And this then brings us to the first idea. You need to, in this word, picture Christ as the head of the household. Not just a nominal head, but he is in charge of everyone and everything. Now in verse 5, you see, it says that we are the household of God. But God the Father has entrusted all management of the house unto his son. So there is a true human being who was also God who stands over the whole church. Hebrews chapter 3 makes this explicit where it says, Hebrews chapter 3 verse 4, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as the son. Great Moses, Moses who to this very day is hallowed by millions of Jewish people and Christians alike as a great figure, is, according to Hebrews, just a servant in comparison to Christ who is the head over all the house. If you belong to the household of the Lord, Christ is your head. He manages your life now. And you want it that way because he has better designs for you than you will ever have. He cares for you better than you will ever care for yourself. Christ stands in authority. That would be terrifying if we weren't persuaded that he loves his household. He's not like some horrible, awful slave driver that you may have heard of who buys up people to destroy them. When we read in Scripture of the way that we are connected to the household, there are three different pictures that come up. We are connected by birth, spiritual birth, that the Holy Spirit formed in you this new life whereby you had faith and trusted in the Lord. And God is not a bad father. If you have been born into this house, then he loves you as one of his own children. And then there's the image of adoption. Ephesians chapter 1 describes us as having been adopted in Jesus Christ and not adopted into some second-rate situation as co-heirs of the Lord of glory. Understand, this, this isn't just imaginative time to be encouraged for your daily life. Christianity declares people are immortal. And the believer has an everlasting life ahead of them where you will be placed higher than angels. And this life you've been brought into already, adoption into a royal household, brought alongside of Jesus Christ. That is love from the head of this household. And then the image of being redeemed, redeemed, bought in some way. Where did all of the slaves come from in the Roman Empire? Many of them 
were prisoners of war or simply criminals. That was a very common way for Rome to deal when they went into a country and they have, they have a war. They say, well, this is your penalty. We're taking all of the healthiest people. We're going to sell them as slaves. Again, the point is not to condone that, but the Bible often uses analogies that people would understand. And they understand that idea of being in a Greco-Roman slave market and people come in and buy this prisoner or a prisoner of war. Ephesians chapter 2. In fact, look with me at Ephesians chapter 2. Not far from our epistle here. Turn back just a little bit. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 13, now in Christ Jesus, that is covenantal language, you have been brought in, you've been united with him through faith. Kind of like when people get married, they are merged together, maybe their bank accounts even joined together. In Jesus Christ, much more, you have been brought together, and it says you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were outside of this household. You weren't a part of this household. If Jesus didn't step in and do something, you would go to your other master, the master by nature, the devil. Sin would reign over you forever. I read of no sanctification describing those who go to hell. And part of the great curse is not simply separation from the Lord, but to have your sin forever. But verse 16 says he has reconciled us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17, and he came and preached to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Here when he's saying both, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles alike. All who believe, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Christ goes into the marketplace and he sees people who are undeserving. He sees people who will not serve him, not the best workers by nature. And there's a bidding war going on. And the world offers so much for you, but it's a small price And Christ stops all the bidding because he puts his hand up and he says, Nail mark, my own blood. Though God has come among us in Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean suffering for you was without pain. He was a true human being. He is wearing our very nature. And so the price by which he redeems from slavery into a joyful service as fellow children, is his own suffering in our place, our debt, why we ought to be imprisoned. What should that do for us? That should, in the first place, make it not onerous to have to obey Christ. I was speaking with a small child. I asked them how school was going. They began school. And I always like to ask kids here how, how their learning is going. You hear interesting things about where they're at in life and maybe where others are at in life. And I asked this child, how's school going? And the child said, I don't like it. And I said, why? The young child, it was their first year of school. They make me obey. (laughs) The obedience is for our good. There's nothing the Lord calls you to which is not for your good. When you understand how much he loves you and the designs he has for you and how he's 
giving you a little bit of responsibility at this stage in your life so that hopefully you can have more later and the joy that comes with that, it's not so burdensome to have Christ as your head. In fact, it's the opposite. It's freedom. And this is the first thing you should think of then when we hear that we are the household of God. Christ is the head of the house. He's the head of every house. But now Christ is not alone in overseeing the church. Imagine how it would have gone in the ancient world if the paterfamilias, the head of the family, had to oversee every aspect, especially on a large estate. A Roman estate could have anywhere from 50 to 500 people on it, sometimes much larger. And can you imagine the head of the household running from one person to the next, making sure they're all doing their job? It's an analogy. Christ, being divine, certainly has the ability and does involve himself in every individual life. But in terms of this picture, the Holy Spirit is calling you to understand something else, especially in our passage. He wants you to understand this picture in relation to the officers of the church. What is their role and what is your relationship to them? Their role is that they are like managers in the household. And you have to keep before you the nature of the household. It's not merely some business that exists for profit as we are so familiar with today. The vast majority of the people in the household are related to one another. Their welfare is all tied up together. And so these managers aren't like that person that proverbially becomes a manager and goes right to his head, dominating over others. That's not the point. But look with me at verse 1 and see what it says. The saying is trustworthy... If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Sometimes the office being described here is described as an elder. An elder because they are typically older and more mature. But here, the word overseer, it's a pretty literal translation of the Greek, which simply means one who watches from above, one who guards And this is a person who has been placed in an elevated position, not to domineer, but to serve the will of whoever is the head. They are middle management. They're not reigning over this thing. Now, what makes for a good, a qualified elder? Look with me again at verse 2. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, Now that, by the way, does not mean that someone cannot be an elder if they've not been married or are not currently married. The literal language here, I submit to you to look for yourself, is a one-woman man. That is, if he has a wife, he's faithful to her. A one-woman man. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. When you consider this picture of a household, it should very much tune your view of what a qualified elder or deacon is. They are the same attributes that make for someone who would be a skilled leader in the home. And so there may be an administrative aspect to it, but the vast majority of these descriptions are moral descriptions, character descriptions. In fact, only one of these has to do specifically with 
what you might call additional skill sets, and it says able to teach. But even there, I would encourage you, push back a little against the idea that, well, then elders are all great teachers, and they, can, they should all be able to preach. The context of the picture is a household. If you're a father and you can't teach, you are going to fail in what you're doing. Able to teach doesn't mean that you're a professor. Able to teach means that you're able to recognize that someone's learning and to modify how you are going about things to help them get it. It does not mean professorial in this context. When we look out for elders, we're looking for people who have the qualities that would also apply in the home. And that's why, typically, private life is the proving ground of elders and deacons. Private life is the proving ground. If they're not managing their home well, they are not at this time eligible to serve. Doesn't matter what your hopes are. Doesn't matter how desperately we need elders. If they're not, God has not called them at this time. And so they have a high responsibility because they're not caring for their family at that point. When they're in the church, they're caring for the household of God, his kids. Even so, it says in verse 5, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? It doesn't mean that he doesn't care in his heart. It means he doesn't know how to do it well. But in turn, not only do they have this high responsibility, in turn, we all have a responsibility toward them. Again, the word as it would have been heard by these ancient believers, this first generation of believers, they would have understood that when a manager of the household tells you to do something, unless he's telling you to do something sinful or harmful, you are to do it. If he's not telling you something sinful or harmful and he tells you to do it, you do it. And then you take it up with the head of the household at another time. Even so, Christians are unquestionably called to submit themselves in the context of a local, visible church to real ordained authority. There is no question. I'm not going to beat around the bush on that because the Bible doesn't. Multitudes of professing Christians are walking in sin because they will not do the very things the Bible calls them to. I don't know their motives. It may simply be from ignorance in many cases. Today, if that is you, your ignorance is done. Because as it says, hear what it says in Hebrews 13, verse 17. This is a command. It's not from merely them. It's not some elder thought, oh, I'm going to set up a system so I can have authority over people. This is boring authority. It's not the authority people get rich off of if a church is healthy at all. The compensation is in, almost entirely in the age to come. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Hear it as from Jesus Christ, the head of the household, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I've heard those groans in a consistory meeting when we think of having to try to call somebody back into worship and we occasionally get, and this is not pointing out anything of any particular individual, give it enough time, this stuff happens in every church if it tries to be faithful. But you're yearning to help a person back into the path of faithfulness, the only path of a credible profession of faith. And they give you a smug reply, well, I, I'm sure that's your opinion. And we're not asking them to do like cartwheels down the center aisle. We're asking people, Attend worship occasionally. 
because the Lord has called you to. Respect your spouse. Stop getting drunk, the Bible's clear. And instead, sometimes people respond in such a flippant way. As it says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It is about your advantage. It is about your advantage. God placed these people whom you, the people of God, elected. God gifted them, but you were his instrument to acknowledge that they had the qualifications. You were present when they took vows. If these people who you acknowledged were exemplary for maturity in Jesus Christ, then especially as a body call you to do something, and it's not sinful, and it's not overtly harmful to you or to others, what does it say if then you say, well, I'm just going to do something else? I want to be clear. My point is not the last week, this week, to stand up here with a stick and to hit. But it is to be faithful because the welfare of the house depends on it. Your spiritual welfare depends on it. Let me give two examples. Or rather, no, I will give two examples. I don't know how long it will be before I come back to the subject again. One of them, can I want to be careful here to not lay a burden on you that the Lord has not laid on you, to go beyond the Bible in any way. The Bible itself does not command New Testament Christians to worship twice a day, as if by not doing so, you are not a Christian or a church is not a church if it doesn't have a second service. For more than 500 years, Reformed churches have upheld a tradition of calling two services. They do so as a matter of wisdom, like it's a matter of wisdom that we have a service at 9.30 a.m. and not at 5.30 a.m., We could call it early. It would not be good for the flock. We could. The elders would do that. And if they did, other than choosing to go to another church, if it's not sinful, and that might be harmful, and you have to determine how that is. But why have they done it for over 5,000 years? For a whole variety of reasons, and we cannot go into all of them in this one sermon. But as a habit, it provides a church with a rounded diet, greater fellowship, and a hallowed Lord's Day. It provides our youth with a thousand more sermons in the context of 18 years than they would otherwise have to attend twice. It provides an opportunity to go through all the core doctrines of the faith and catechesis alongside of going through books of the Bible. It's balanced. They didn't ordain it that way so that we could have two tiers of more faithful and less faithful Christians. It was for your good. Now, it's certainly not sinful to attend church twice on a Sunday, but it may not be healthy for you. We understand there are a variety of reasons why that may not work, but it should be with a sense of serious reverence towards the authority given to them that you choose not to come to this or to another service. And there are other churches throughout the valley if traveling back twice a day is hard. How do you look at the elders? Do you see them as just some guys who administer, or do you see them as God's appointed divine agents seeking your well-being? That's the second idea here. The second idea. There's one more idea, and it's simply this. Imagine a household where everyone is a manager. That would not work. And there are some businesses that fail because they try to make everyone a manager in the same way. The economics of this household 
requires that there be a whole variety of people with different kinds of gifts who are faithful. Every person has a role to play in the household of God. And when he called you, he had a design for your life. And that doesn't mean that it's locked in and you do the same thing forever. There is variation for many people. Your interests change. But the point is that you serve with the gifts that you have. It's expected that in the natural household, everyone fulfills their part. Hear what it says in 1 Timothy verse five, or chapter 5, if you turn over just a little bit. 1 Timothy 5 verse 4. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. So that is, you have a woman whose husband dies, but she has other family members who can help take care of her. The duty of taking care of her falls first on the family members, not on the church, not on the government. If she has family members, the family cares for her first. That's a natural obligation. Look at verse 8. It underscores this. But if anyone does not provide for his own relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In God's sight, you have a natural duty to care for those who have cared for you. If that exists in the natural home, then it certainly exists in the household of God too. That's one of the reasons why right out the gate in the New Testament in the book of Acts, as the apostles begin to proclaim the gospel, one of the first things you see is that they set up an organizational system to care for widows in the church who are described as widows indeed. They have no family to care for them. This church does similarly. We have deacons. And the role of the deacons is not simply to walk between the aisles and collect money. Much more importantly, the role of the deacons is on behalf of the church to administer those funds in a responsible way towards those who have legitimate need. But that does not mean that the deacons alone do all of those things. Jesus speaks of people visiting widows, and then he says, you did it unto me. He doesn't mean just deacons do that. There is not, I'm so tempted, you know I can be long-winded. And it is in love, and I can't list for you the many opportunities in this church. We have over 200 people who attend regularly. Over 200 people. People have needs. Often, the church languishes for lack of imagination. Trying to imagine what are the needs of others. And if you lack imagination, all you need to do is then ask Ask what are the opportunities that you might be paired because God has given you gifts. If you won't care for the household, it says you've denied the faith. You're worse than an unbeliever. Again, I'm not trying to lay a trip on you about exactly what it's going to look like. It'll look different and some people have very sensitive consciences. But this is the word of God and our highest priority must be this household before it is the world. Take care of your natural home. Take care of this home, then the world. Galatians 6, verse 10. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Especially to those of the household of faith. There are shut-ins in our church. I'm, I'm going to speak frankly because I want this church to be well. I don't care about opinions at this moment. We have shut-ins who receive visits exceptionally rarely. 
And the elders review it every month, these people who need care. Why don't the elders do it? Because they are elding. It takes a lot of time. To, there's 200. As the church grows, the needs grow. And the only way the church will stay healthy is if the various parts assume their roles. If you are here and you are in Jesus Christ, you have been given an opportunity for participating and the Holy Spirit working through you. You are not going to find greater satisfaction in your career. You're not going to find greater satisfaction in your hobbies. Not if the Holy Spirit is at work. So this is not meant to be a burden. It's freedom from everything that is secondary. I want to lay before you, by way of conclusion, just a few questions related to everything that we've seen. First, are you a member of the household? And here I don't mean simply outwardly, that you're a member of the church. But have you been adopted? Have you been received? Have you been born again? What evidence is there in your life of that? It starts with assurance. It starts with assurance concerning the promises of the Lord and resting in them. Hebrews 3.6 says, We are Christ's house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Not boasting in how good of servants we are in the house. That's not where I'm telling you to look. Are you a member of the household? Boast in your hope that Jesus Christ bought you with his blood and he loves you and he's not going to turn away from you and he's going to help you to grow. Boast in that. And if you have not yet, believe upon him. There is no better house. There is no better future. There are no better wages than what the Lord offers to us. I leave you with these two passages. Proverbs 11, verse 24 One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. That's a puzzle. How are they growing wealthier as they give more away? Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. I think you should, in this context, think of that spiritually and in terms of your time. As you pour into the church, you receive riches and things far better. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. If you want to know the scriptures better, teach them to someone. Talk about them. If you want to become a better disciple, disciple someone. If you want to grow in your ministry and have fresh wind in the sails, help someone else learn how to do your job so that if, God forbid, you pass or move, the church doesn't stop in its tracks with your going. Finally, Matthew 25, verse 34. Hear this, and then we'll close in prayer. Jesus speaking tells of the age to come. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these, the least of my brothers, you did it unto me. These are your brothers. 
They are out there in the world too, as many as know Christ. And I'm not saying this is the only place you serve. But Christ receives it as unto him. And in glory, that will mean more to you than anything else. May he help us then. Let's ask for help now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for delivering us from the despair of standing outside of your house, which by nature would have been our choice. We thank you that you, by your spirit, have transformed us. You gave us a thirst for a salvation not of works. You gave us a desire to embrace Christ, who is perfectly sufficient. We thank you that all his life of perfect service has been counted to us through faith. And we ask, Lord, that in gratitude you would stir us up for the high work that you've given to us, that we might play our role in this church, but as part of your global church, as part of your cosmic church, even those in glory already. We thank you for such a privilege. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.